people would actually identify us as disciples of his by our love for one another. In, in John 13, 35, it says this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So brotherly love for our spiritual brothers and sisters is a, a mark of a true disciple of Christ. In fact, Scripture says elsewhere that if allow to others less than he ought. And then many offenses happen daily which cause separation. I don't have a really short back. It says, I want to read it again. For nothing flows away so easily as love. He loves the other day. Don't question me. And then he surprised you whatsoever it is. When everyone thinks of himself more than he ought, he will allow others 
issue is not to be looking for everyone to be an angel. The issue is you never know what your hospitality might be doing to advance the kingdom of God. You simply don't know what that person that you are hospitable to, uh, what that might be doing to advance the gospel and the kingdom of God. So brothers and sisters in the church are targets of our love. Strangers, targets of our love. Prisoners, targets of our love. To properly understand what he's saying here, we need to understand some historical context. During the time that this is written, it was quite common for Christ followers to be just tossed in prison for being Christians. This was typical persecution. You can read about it in history books as well as actual letters. I read, I read about there was a letter from a Roman, from I think the Roman emperor to somebody else uh, talking about this. But the author of this letter is advocating, uh, excuse me, of Hebrews, is advocating that these brothers and sisters show compassion to these Christians who've been thrown in jail and who are suffering innocently. They should remember them. They should visit them and provide for them as they are able. Now, um, what about Christians who've committed a crime and they're rightfully in prison? Um, yeah, I, I think so too. I think that the, the whole brotherly love and, and ministering to prisoners things can extend to them. But contextually, what we're talking about here, what he has mainly in view, are probably these folks who've been persecuted and tossed in jail. Uh, when, they, when that would happen, they would lose all of their possessions many times, maybe their home. Um, and uh, there also were people who had uh, debts. We read about um, Jesus tell stories about uh, there were people, it was a practice where if someone had a debt, they could be thrown in jail until they could pay that debt off. Or, you know, I guess they died or whatever. So he's advocating that we show compassion to those who are suffering. He says to remember them. And we should recognize at this point that it, it is easy for us to forget those Christians around the world who are being persecuted in ways that we can only imagine. You know, the writer is... You know, I don't... Uh, when we look at the context of what he was talking about, and then we think about remembering those who are in jail uh, and mistreated for the sake of Christ in particular... Um, we live in such lavishness in our country. We do. And, and I'm not saying anything bad necessarily about that. I'm just saying like, like, like if I want a sandwich, I walk to Oliver's and I buy a sandwich, right? And, and most of the time, right, I got the money to do that. I don't have to really worry about that too much, you know? Um, nobody's busting in here and putting us all in handcuffs and taking us to jail because we came to church. And so sometimes it's easy because we don't have to worry about those things a whole lot. It, it's really easy to forget about the persecuted church around the world. Um, but it's happening in lots of places around the world. And we should remember and pray for the persecuted church as we have, eight, or as we have the ability to do to help them, to show compassion to them, to remember them in our prayers. So our authors addressed how we are to live holy lives outwardly, but now he turns the focus inwardly to how we love and think about our spouses and marriage, in particular marriage. See, love 
is not the only virtue for Christians. We make a lot of love, and it's important, but it's not the only thing. Sometimes we talk so much about love that we sort of are like, yes, love, we love, we love, we love. Oh, yeah, you should be pure and holy. Like, that's not, a, I don't think that's supposed to be an out-of-balance thing. Love's not the only virtue for Christians. We must talk about purity and freedom from the corruption of sin as well. Francis Schaeffer explains this. He says, the Christian really has a double task. He has to practice both God's holiness and God's love. Not his love without his holiness, that is only compromise. Anything that an individual Christian or Christian group does that fails to show the simultaneous balance of the holiness of God and the love of God presents to a watching world not a demonstration of, who God, of, of the God who exists, but a caricature of the God who exists. So when we outlandishly push his love and not his holiness, or all of his holiness and not his love, we're going to be giving a character, in other words, not an accurate representation of who God described in Scripture is. And so he gives these final instructions about marriage. Remember, he's talking about holy living, and he's going to go into talking about marriage and purity, but first he tells us to hold marriage in honor. Hold marriage in honor. Notice this is a positive statement. He doesn't just say, do not commit adultery. He, he actually says, hold marriage in honor. Biblical marriage is what he's talking about, first of all. And I wish that I lived in a place where I didn't have to say that, but I do have to say that, that when he talks about holding marriage in honor, there's a reason he's saying that. He's saying, hold marriage in honor, and he's talking about biblical marriage. He's talking about one man, one woman for one lifetime to hold it in honor. Marriage is the first institution that God established here, and it's the basic building block of society and the church. And generally speaking, you can gauge the health of a church based on the health of the marriages in that church. And I've seen and I've heard so many who don't hold marriage in honor in the world I do premarital counseling, and I've had couples talk about how marriage is talked about by their coworkers. And when I do this counseling, I actually use some material. I use a book by a guy named Rob Green. He's a pastor out in Indiana called Tying the Knot. And in that book, in the introduction, he explains two extremes that he's seen in how people view marriage. And when we talk about holding marriage in honor, I want to look at some extremes of the way that people in the world sometimes think about marriage. So... He writes this. The first extreme is the belief that marriage has to be hard and difficult with an inevitably miserable transition period. I firmly believe that God gave us the gift of marriage as one of the joys of life on earth. We don't need to enter it thinking it will be anything other than wonderful. So please disregard those who act as if marriage is a tremendous burden leading to struggle upon struggle. Yes, some marriages struggle. But God intends any struggles you have to show you where you need Jesus' work in your heart. So, yes, marriage, it is hard. It is a struggle. But 
there are some people who have such a view of marriage as, oh, it's just you know, it's the old ball and chain and drudgery and stuff. The second extreme that he talks about is this. Uh, the second extreme to avoid is the belief that marriage will be wonderful without any effort. As one of my friends once told me, he thought the formula to a great marriage was really simple. Just don't have sex before you're married, marry a Christian, and everything will be great. Certainly, the Bible encourages believers to only marry believers and to abstain from sex before marriage. But those things alone do not guarantee a wonderful marriage. So we see people either thinking, wow, marriage is terrible, or marriage is perfect, there's never, ever any problem. I had some friends in a church that I served at once. In fact, the first church that I served at. And these folks had been married a while, and they had several kids. And they told us that they never fought. They never fought. No, we, we don't fight. We don't argue. We never. They do lie, apparently, because that just doesn't happen, right? There's struggle. You have two sinners living together under one roof. And so we want to avoid both of those extremes. I love the way that Green points that out. And we want to avoid uh, going one way or the other. And we want to hold marriage as, as this in honor. We want to have a high view of marriage in the way that the Bible talks about marriage. And then secondly, he tells them to keep the marriage bed undefiled. Some of you are like, I'm really glad the kids are in children's ministry. Don't worry, I'm not going to get too deep into it here. But the first recipients of this letter were living in a culture that was similar to ours in the fact that it was full of sexual perversion and indulgence and sexual immorality. And Christians have always, have, have always supposed to be marked as different in the area of sexuality. Today's culture has become so sexualized that many of us have become so desensitized to it that we either don't notice things going on around us anymore or we refuse to expect Christians to be different. Family, the Lord God expects Christians to be different, whether single or married. Part of holding marriage in high honor is keeping it pure. A Christian church must not tolerate or endorse sexual activity of any kind that is against God's design. So whether that is heterosexual or homosexual or whatever the next hot perversion is, we must not give approval to that which the Lord says is evil. We must also, however, maintain our love for others. And I fear that we struggle in holding those in tension, in love and the call to holiness and purity. So he gives final instructions about love. He gives final instructions about marriage. And then he gives us some, in the last couple of verses, final instructions about faith in God's provision. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what command do to me. So what do we do with that? What, are the, what is he trying to get us to understand and to do? Well, number one is hold loosely to money. 
hold loosely to money. It's not a fistful of dollars, Clint Eastwood, but an open palm. This verse does not say that money is evil. So hear that. The verse does not say that money is evil. The problem is not money. The problem is the love of money. So don't love money. Don't build your life around the making of and the maintaining of and the hoarding and keeping of money. But he also says not only that we are to hold loosely to money, but that we should be content with what we have. And I'm just going to be real honest. I mean, hopefully I'm always real honest, but I struggle with this one. I struggle with this one. The Word of God has much to say about money and our use of it. And we need to understand contextually here, this verse does not mean to just stop working and just live with whatever you've got. You can find all kinds of passages in Scripture on the importance of handling money well and saving and the importance of work, the significance of that. This passage is actually not giving us an economic rule. I know you look at it and you think, well, this is talking about, it's talking about money, right? So it's giving us some kind of economic rule. It's actually not giving us an economic rule. It's giving us a spiritual principle that should govern the way we live. See, he's writing to a group of Christians who could lose everything they own and be thrown into prison. Would they be content with that? Our security and our comfort shouldn't come from us owning all the things but it should come from the fact that we serve a God who not only takes care of us, but promises to never leave us or forsake us. And God, as we found out earlier in Hebrews, can't lie. And he's the one who's promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And I, when I read this, and I think about us being, in content, being content in the Lord, when you... Look at verse 6 that says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And that harkens back to Psalm 118, verse 6. But when I think about that, that idea of what can people do to me, really? The Lord is the Lord's my king. I think about my friend Jim who used to say in his sermons, he would say, I'm invincible until God's done with me. And I think about that great passage in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 that says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the question is not financial necessarily, but it's can you be content in whatever situation you are in because you have Christ Jesus as your Lord and his promise to never leave you nor forsake you. And will you, will, will I, will all of us let that contentment govern our lives instead of chasing after money and possessions to give us comfort? People who don't love money and are content are more generous And when you don't cling to that financial success, you're more willing to show hospitality, to love your brother, to provide for their needs. You see how it's all connected? So what is expected of us? What is expected of us? To love God, to love one another, be hospitable, be generous with one another, remember the persecuted church, those imprisoned, to be content with Jesus where God has placed us. I've heard it said, grow where you're planted. I'm going to invite the musicians to come towards the front and start to get ready to play. I want to give you one more quote from a guy named Richard Phillips who wrote a great commentary on, on Hebrews. And he says this, this is faith's soliloquy. If God is my helper, then what can man do to me? The point here is that given God's promise to be with us, the God who gave us his only son and therefore surely will give us everything else he has, then God is my helper and he will never leave or forsake me. If that is true, then why should I be afraid? Here is the antidote to the fear of man which otherwise so dominates our lives, which leads us from God and into sin. When we fear man more than God, we will drift away from God and towards sin. If you're content in the Lord Jesus, then what can mere humans do to you? Why are we so scared of them? Why are we so scared of what people think of us? Why are we so scared? If we have the approval of the God of all creation in Christ Jesus, why are we so scared of people? Because Jesus is better, we can live faithful lives of purity and holiness for the glory of God and the good of the church. We are called to holy living. It's hard It's different. It stands out among the world around us. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I contemplate all the repercussions of that which I could experience, I'm drawn to this thought. Jesus is worth it because Jesus is better than whatever it is that I might gain by going their way instead of my way. Or his way, sorry. Everything else in life, everything else in life must fall 
second to that. So the question before you this morning that I leave you with is, how will you organize your life around Jesus? Would you stand and pray with me? God, as we come to this time of decision, this time of answering that question in our hearts of how we will build our lives and organize our lives around you, I pray that as we sing, as as the words of the next song wash over us, I pray that we would understand the pull on our hearts from your word that we would understand what it is that we need to do and you'd help us to be faithful and obedient. As I heard Dr. Lawson say on on that video, that we would do what you've laid before us with all our might. To your glory, Jesus. Help us to love one another with brotherly love. Help us to chase after you instead of just comfort from money. Help us to be generous. Help us to be pure in how we act and think about marriage. Let us hold it in high regard, in high honor. And God, in all things, may you be glorified by us being your church. We're told in scripture that that we'll be known as your disciples because of our love for one another. I pray that people in Dixon would know that we belong to you because of the way that they see us loving one another. Help us be faithful in that, Jesus. And God, when we we mess that up with our sin, and, and we will, bring us quickly to repentance because we know that it's only in you, Jesus, only at the cross that we find forgiveness, only in you that we get strength. You've given us the Holy Spirit to empower us for doing the work. Help us to rely on you and to trust you in all things. May we decrease and you increase in us, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Let's sing it.